0: Well, good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Welcome to the annual meeting of the Wells Historical Institute, and our always part of our annual meeting is a presentation uh, that we have. Uh, this year, we're going to continue our presentation on our series on our great heritage, uh, our ministerial education schools of Wells. Last year, we heard from Pastor Paul Prangy about Michigan Lutheran Seminary, and so this year we're going to hear about Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary from. Professor Brenner. And before I introduce him, just a little devotional thought and uh, welcome. Uh, First of all, if you need restroom facilities, that isn't the devotional thought, but uh, if you need restroom facilities, there are some. um, For women, you can either go down the hall that way or you can go down the stairs and around the corner. Uh, For men, uh, down the stairs and around the corner or all the way down the stairs here, you'll find some as well. Um, Or ask a student. But... uh, Welcome to our campus here at the seminary. Um, I'm up here because I'm also the chairman of the Wells Historical Institute, uh, so glad to have have you here today. Um, If you are not a member, we'd love to have you as one, Uh, but if you're not a member, we're happy you're here today anyway. Uh, When you you go to the seminary here, uh, our students, or when you walk these halls, you see history all around you, the pictures, Lining uh, lining the walls of all the, of the graduating classes, we've got them going all the way back to the 1890s, and you think about those those pictures. Um, it's really part of that long line of what what Paul encouraged Timothy, and trust to reliable men. This this truth that he had been proclaiming, so that they could proclaim and teach others. And that's what a seminary really is and our ministerial education system really is and a blessing in that way that it's this, this long line to continue uh, equipping, equipping people to be able to proclaim that gospel of Jesus from one generation to the next. Uh, it, the start of our seminary, as Professor Brenner I'm sure will tell us, was, was a seminal event uh, because we were kind of struggling as a synod Not enough pastors. Where are are things going to go? And then very small beginnings in Watertown and then now we're blessed with this facility here. And it's been 160 years uh, that we've had ministerial education training, training of pastors going on in our synod and it is a true blessing. And as fits and starts, as any historical uh, account will tell you, and uh, yet the Lord continues to do his work to raise up one generation after another. And it's nice that we have a few young men here from our seminary attending this, this afternoon because they're that next, that next generation. By the way, you guys will get extra credit for this uh, in the church history courses. Um, never fear, right? Professor, Went you give Parker? Okay, you got it. Um, so, uh, before I introduce Professor Brenner, maybe we could just have a, a quick word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of... Of the opportunity you give us, and the the professors and students, uh, and and supporters of the ministerial education system of our church body, we thank you for the many years of training of pastors, and the and the ministry that they have carried out uh, throughout these decades. Uh, We thank you for bringing us together today to learn more about uh, your work through uh, through your people. We pray that you would bless our time together. Uh, in Jesus' name, Amen. Professor Brenner, uh, Professor Emeritus Brenner, uh, has been uh, uh, was a professor here at the seminary from 1991. I can always remember that date because that was my ju- my first year in the seminary, and we broke him in. he w- we broke him in. Um, got his first first Augsburg Confession class back in 1991, and uh, he served here as uh, dean of students. And I have the privilege of now being the dean of students after him. So. Uh, but he uh, taught church history and education and later dogmatics here at the seminary from 1991 until 20, 2021, um, so 30 years of teaching. And so he is going, he's also the co-author of the history of our seminary, a book called Jars of Clay. And I do have some limited copies of that book if anybody would be interested in purchasing that for $20 uh, following, the, following our time here. I would be happy to, to sell you one. Um, he's the co-author of that book as well. Plus, also uh, a book on the election controversy of the Synod that occurred among the Lutheran churches of uh, of America, and uh, what else did you write? Oh, you're working on or finished the manuscript for an updating of the Wisconsin Synod Lutherans, uh, a history of the Wisconsin Synod. So, Professor Brenner.
1: There we go. you hear okay? Uh, You should have an outline there. The reason I have an outline is so as an old professor we tend to wander quite a bit and uh, you would be here probably well into the evening and I don't think any of you want to be here that long. Thanks so much for so many to come out here on such a nice fall day. Uh, We're going to try and give an overview of the history of the seminary that's kind of a challenging thought in about an hour presentation. Uh, But sort of the theme of this presentation is uh, Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, theological leadership service, and meeting the needs of the Synod. And that's something that comes up over and over again uh, with different emphases throughout the history of the Synod. Uh, I'd just like to start by reading a quote from the centennial history of the seminary. It was written by Pastor Emanuel Fry, uh, who happens to be my maternal grandfather. Uh, he was asked by the sem faculty to write this. It appeared in the quarterly. He wrote, the history of our synod is intimately bound up with it, that is a seminary. It's not too much to say that what our synod is today can largely be traced back to our seminary. A similar close relationship between synods and their seminaries can be observed in the history of all church bodies. Whenever seminaries stood for conservatism in doctrine and practice, whenever true Bible teaching was inculcated upon their students, that showed itself in their publica doctrina in the teaching and practice of those church bodies in general. If, on the other hand, the spirit of liberalism crept into the seminaries in the course of time, the same spirit of liberalism was soon noted in the clergy who received their training in such an atmosphere. If the fountain is polluted, what can you expect of the waters which spread to the nooks and corners of a church body? That is why the teaching and training received at its seminary has far-reaching effects on an organization. The graduates of the seminary ultimately set the pattern for doctrine and practice. And the things that really count, one may say, we may say, the history of the synod is largely largely the history of its theological seminary. Uh, They're just so intertwined. Now, the slide you see here, uh, that uh, seal was developed uh, after the seminary was renamed Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary back about 1959. And for nearly half a century, uh, you would have seen that seal on everything that had to do with the seminary. 2004, when we celebrated the 75th anniversary of this campus, we decided the time was to maybe to get a little more up to date and develop a logo for the seminary. And so we came up with a stylized uh, depiction of the tower, which is sort of a focal point of our campus. Now, this isn't the original one that we had. It's been tweaked a few times over the years. We shouldn't really take seminary for granted. Uh, I think we do after 150 plus years. Uh, It's not something that was always here and our forefathers really had to struggle not only to establish it, but to keep it going. By the way, the previous slide, you see that, oops, too many. There we go. See the cross very prominent there. You can see it also on this picture. The angle the picture was taken at has Luther pointing directly at the cross. That cross was not always on the tower. In fact, this campus had existed for some time when I believe it was the caretaker of the seminary just thought that was absolutely improper that we didn't have a cross anywhere on the outside of this building. And he insisted that that cross be put on the the tower. Uh, Sometimes laymen come up with some pretty good suggestions (laughs) as to what ought to identify a, a seminary, and this certainly is it. Well, where did we originally get our pastors from? Not from here. Mission societies in Europe would have supplied the vast majority of them in the first 20, 30-plus years of our Synod's existence. Also, men were trained by individual pastors, and often those pastors did a remarkable job of training young men for the ministry. Pastors from other American Synods and even other church bodies, you read the early minutes of the Synod, that can sometimes be disastrous, men coming to us from the Roman Catholic Church or from the Methodist Church and not staying around too long uh, because they finally had to be disciplined, uh, both for con- conduct and also doctrine. Teachers were often pressed into service in the early days. Why? Best educated people. They were used to being up in front of people and speaking, and so they would be pressed into service uh, for a seminary. Things started to change once John Bodding took over as president of our synod, because he recognized if our, our uh, synod was going to survive, it needed a source of its own pastors. In 19, it's not 19, 1862, he wrote this, addressing the synod convention. I believe that since the beginning of the synod, the presidium of the synod has not felt the lack of pastors as they did this past synodical year. Old synodical congregations have been orphaned for many months and are struggling with the sex and schismatics to keep themselves alive. Uh, The the Methodists particularly were were sheep-stealers and caused no end of problems in the early days of our synod. On their repeated cries for help, no other comfort could be given than wait with the hope for the eventual help from the Lord. Requests for preachers coming from new congregations who had not as yet joined the Synod could not be granted even a hearing. How can we find an answer if we do not earnestly think about establishing our own seminary and putting our hands more seriously and with greater faith to the task? We cannot and dare not rely on Germany. Even if now and then a worker is sent whom we will accept with sincere thanks to our Lord and to our German brothers who feel for us, it is still only like a drop of water on a hot stone. We must in our country, in our synod, establish a source from which workers will flow. If we wait with the founding of such an institution until we are rich, nothing will ever happen. 62, the synod didn't resolve yet. To open a seminary. That came in '63, after Bodding's sincere pleading. 1863. Well, if you know a little American history, middle of the Civil War. The same summer that the Battle of Gettysburg took place. And by the way, one of our pastors was trained at the Gettysburg Seminary and served very faithfully. In our synod, then as president of the Minnesota Synod, and then back in New York City, where he took the oldest continually existing uh, Lutheran church in America and brought it into the Synodical Conference. Uh, that's a Missouri Synod church today. But Bodding knew we have to get started. Times were not good. Synod was poor. Probably a few laymen had already made some money in America, but not many. Civil War. Well, how did that affect our people? Believe it or not, the Civil War was fought pretty much by immigrants. The old established uh, Americans out east would often pay their way out of the draft. Who, who ended up doing a lot of the fighting? But it was the the German immigrants. I remember talking with President Panning. His, I believe it was his grandfather. I don't think his great grandfather. Grandfather was killed. In the Civil War, he had been a farmer in in Minnesota. Uh, Many vacancies. And in fact, at this time, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, we had something like 26 congregations and we had something like 13 vacancies in addition. That's a pretty high vacancy rate. Am I pointing this thing wrong? Doesn't seem to be working real well. All right. And the sources, as we mentioned, weren't very dependable. Uh, There was a lack of consistent training. You never knew what you would get when you get pastors trained from all kinds of different sources. Some of them very confessional Lutherans, others not at all. Uh, Also, you have a debate going on that summer in the Synod Convention. Where should we put our seminary? Well, Milwaukee would be a logical choice, wouldn't it? Port City, main city in Wisconsin. It had, well, libraries. It had cultural things. That's where Mühlheuser, the first president of the synod, was still serving at Grace Downtown. Or how about Watertown? That's where President Bodding was serving, and of course he's pushing for that. Uh, What's the argument for Watertown? Well, in a small town, these boys are less likely to get into trouble. (laughs) Somehow our forefathers maybe didn't quite understand original sin like they should have. All right. Uh, Kaler sees the final vote really as a victory of the botting forces over the Mühlheuser, forces the more confessional Lutheran over the more wishy-washy Lutheran. And the vote was 49 to 19 in favor of Watertown, with the expectation that Watertown area would also kick over about $2,000 uh, because they would get some prestige of having a school there. And also a school does, you know, help the local economy a little bit. Sinner then sent Bodding off to Europe to collect for the new school. Uh, and he was quite uh, actually successful in that endeavor. All right, who's going to be the first professor? Dr. Edward Muldenke came into the Synod uh, in 1861. He is university trained, so they said, that's the man to be our seminary professor. Of course, one of the problems was he was also the Synod's Riza Prediger, uh, the traveling missionary, and that's going to cause some complications uh, in the next couple of years. Seminary started in Watertown, the Gardner House, and also at St. Mark's in Watertown. In 1864, the trustees were able to buy about five acres. Eventually, well, the current campus in Watertown is 38 acres. Somebody told me, and I have not been able to track that down, but at one time, the the synod-owned property all the way down to, well, where Sharp Corner uh, Zwigs is, down there, and they sold off the land, figuring we're never going to need it because we're never going to grow big. We haven't always been far sighted in our Senate. Huh? All right. Edward Muldenke, I think I skipped one. That's Gardner House up close, it's still there. Has a plaque on it now, historical plaque, indicating that it's a place where Northwestern College was founded technically as Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary was founded. All right, well, Denke is a pretty capable guy, Uh, but like I said, he's a traveling missionary, and he figured those responsibilities were awfully important too, and so ever so often during the school year, he would go off on one of his missionary trips, and then there's nobody there to teach. Also, right along, the idea was to uh, found... Uh, college and that's going to add to the problems. 1863-64, the first year of the seminary, one student and he lasts until November or October. Uh, Yeah, our forefathers had the old Adam too and then in November a new student enrolled, uh, Ziegler, who ends up graduating from our seminary and, and becoming a pretty prominent pastor in our circles. 1864-65, 1864-65, there's 11 students. In 1865, the first graduate of the seminary uh, was a man by the name of Herman Hoffman. Uh, he had received some training over in Europe, so he was able to graduate from the seminary in one year. Northwestern University was founded as a feeder school for the seminary, 1865. That's the original campus. The Cafe Mila burned down About 1893, that old dormitory was still around when I was a student at Northwestern. That's where all the piano practice rooms were by then. Mulvaney doesn't stay, though. Why? Well, you got a university now, you got more students, and there were discipline problems. And the Synod wasn't real satisfied with how those were being handled and also... Muldenki would go off on his mission trips ever so often, so they said, Muldenki, I need some help. We're gonna, we're gonna call a dean of students to help you out. And that was this man, Adolf Heineke. I got a better picture of him in a minute. Uh, Muldenki didn't like that. Uh, he thought that it was kind of a vote of no confidence. It wasn't intended that way at all. They knew he was busy, they knew he needed help. He was not opposed to Heineke. He had even suggested him to teach at the college. Heineke was university trained. But Modenke thought, this is a horrible waste of money. We cannot afford this as a synod. And so when Heineke was called, Modenke left the synod. Uh, eventually, he's going to end up teaching at Gettysburg College in Gettysburg. Well, this man comes pretty highly regarded. He became a confessional Lutheran. I wish I could have more time to go into his background. It, you, you couldn't write fiction like the background he came from to become the great confessional leader of the Wisconsin Synod. Through the study of dogmatics, he became a convinced Lutheran. He came to the USA in February of 1863 In the meantime, there there weren't enough uh, calls to go around in Germany, and so often these men would serve as tutors uh, or do other things first before they could get a congregation of their own. He served as a tutor in Switzerland and actually married the daughter of a Swiss Reformed pastor. Uh, She will follow him to America, and then they're going to get married actually at Bodding's Church, St. Mark's in Watertown. He started out at Farmington, which is close to Watertown, for three years until he came to the seminary. I don't think we should ever underestimate his contributions to our synod. Uh, All the years he served as uh, professor and president of the seminary, generations that he trained Uh, the theological foundation that he gave to our synod, uh, we wouldn't be the synod we are today without this this man, Adolf Heineke. And in fact, uh, during the election controversy, I think our synod would have fallen apart uh, without this man. And if it had fallen apart, we would have probably ended up eventually in today's Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Uh, He kept us steadfast to God's Word and Scripture's teaching. Well, from 1864 until 1870, there were 11 pastors graduated from our seminary. Not huge numbers, but it is a start. And during those years, as people noticed our synod, actually through our publications, the Gemeindeblatt, and Heineke was the, editor for that, noticed that better things were happening in the Wisconsin Synod. Uh, Bodding decided, it is time for us to talk to the Missouri Synod leadership. Missouri Synod and Wisconsin Synod had congregations uh, in the same areas in Wisconsin, and often there were congregational disputes, and they said that this just isn't productive for the Church of God. And so he called, well, the the day the Synod's Convention ended in 1868 uh, with a resolution, we need to have a colloquy with Missouri. He headed up to the meeting of the Northern District of the Missouri Synod, which was happening in Milwaukee. Walther, the president of the Missouri Synod, happened to be there and said, we should do this. He said, the committee of this district will represent us, I'll be there two, well, they met for not too long and uh, found out that they were really in full doctrinal agreement. And Walther, who could be pretty critical of the Wisconsin Synod in the first couple decades of our existence, was a very big man. After the colloquy was ended, uh, he published in uh, their Luter Honor, the Missouri Synod's periodical, all our doubts about the Wisconsin Senate have been put to shame. In fact, if we would have known what we know today, we could have been in fellowship 10 years ago. That's a big man who's able to admit something like that publicly. Well, as part of the agreement uh, that resulted in the de- Declaration of Fellowship was sort of a, a joint worker training agreement. They knew the Wisconsin Synod was struggling. Missouri Synod St. Louis Seminary had been in existence for quite a while, had a great faculty, was financially solvent. They said, I tell you what, you send a professor to St. Louis and we'll send a professor to Northwestern College. Our students in Wisconsin can use your Northwestern College and your students can come to our seminary. And that agreement really worked quite well. St. Louis years, in fact, come on, knock. St. Louis years were actually quite productive. Uh, During the eight years that our men were being trained in St. Louis, some 17 men graduated and served as pastors in our synod. Among those men would be, from left to right, uh, August Pieper, J.P. Kaler, and John Schaller. They were all within a year or so of each other at the seminary in those days. I don't think we should ever uh, underestimate what that meant either. These men received really a great training from Walther and the other highly regarded professors at St. Louis. Well, why did all this come to an end? Well, in the Synodical Conference, which was uh, Federation of Like-Minded Confessional Lutheran Churches, the idea was to prevent congregational turmoil. What we should do is divide ourselves by state, kind of like districts, and then uh, everybody in the synodical conference, at least all the German-speaking synods, would become one, also administratively. And they said in those areas where that can be done quickly and they were thinking particularly Wisconsin they said go ahead and do it and you can attach yourselves as a district to another synod which basically meant that in the Wisconsin there are a lot of Missouri pastors Wisconsin would become a district of the Missouri Synod now by this time our forefathers had fought a lot of battles and a lot of struggles to become a confessional Lutheran Synod and they weren't minded to do that nor did they see that as something necessary that had to be done. And so they didn't go along with the state synod proposal really for those two reasons. I could go into this in a lot more detail too, but uh, I don't want to get into those details. Missouri Synod was outraged by that. Uh, They thought it was kind of an ungodly action on our part. Uh, And yet it wasn't. Uh, this was something, a matter of Offering over which people can disagree. And it wasn't a doctrinal issue at all. It was more an administrative issue, if anything. Uh, that will play out then in the election controversy when we were solidly on the side of the Missouri Synod. Well, we needed to reopen our seminary. And where are we going to do that? 13th and Vine in, well, Milwaukee now. Why are we in Milwaukee? Bodding's a pastor in Milwaukee now, <laughs> and so was Heineke. Right. That first uh, faculty was pretty strong. You had Adolf Heineke, Eugene Knott's, and August Grabner. Grabner in 1887 will accept a call to uh, Concordia St. Louis. Opening student body, about six students. A pretty good ratio of students to faculty there. But really a solid faculty in Milwaukee. All of them were university trained. Right, actual picture of that. By the way, I was just talking with John Ruprecht. This building is also where the Lutheran High School in Milwaukee started after our seminary moved to Wauwatosa and the Lutheran High School was started as a joint Wisconsin Missouri Synod effort in 1904, if my memory is 1903, okay, as close. I actually used that building for a while. Uh, well, we're too soon for that. Election controversy. Uh, could go into an awful lot of detail there, but I won't. Uh, developed about 1878 in reaction to, uh, well, an essay by Walther, uh, in which he said we should be careful about using the expression election in view of faith, election in feet two two fidei. Now, this is uh, an expression that some of the great dogmaticians had used, including... Uh, uh, John Gerhardt, and he used it and the others used it to separate themselves from the German Reformed. The Reformed were making all kinds of inroads into Germany. And of course, coming out of a Calvinistic background, they believed in absolute predestination and also double predestination. They would say God chose those who were going to be saved. He also chose those who were going to be damned. Uh, Lutherans never taught that, uh, just the opposite in the form I conquered. In fact, Lutherans would say his decree is not an absolute one or even unconditional, conditioned on two things, God's grace and Christ's merit. Scripture always says, we're chosen in Christ, well, Gerhardt and others used that expression in 202 Fidae to kind of separate themselves from the reform. The trouble is, when they came to America, where Arminianism was much stronger and so forth, with synergism that human beings cooperate in their own conversion and salvation, uh, it was not a happy term because actually that term was originally used by Arminians. Well, a huge controversy broke out. The whole Ohio Synod left the Synodical Conference. About a third of the old Norwegian Synod uh, were opposed to Walther. Two-thirds were on Walther's side, but that Synod separated from the Synodical Conference for a time, remained in fellowship, but separated from the Synodical Conference. Why? Well, they thought it would be easier for them to deal with problems in their midst than to have to try and do that within the synodical conference organization, a German-speaking church body, uh, as opposed to being able to do it in their native Norwegian and so forth. Well, our synod was torn by this too. And Heineke is going to take the lead. I had a colloquy in Milwaukee in January 1881. It became evident to everyone that the Wisconsin Synod was siding with Walther in the Missouri Synod. Walther publicly expressed his appreciation for the Wisconsin Synod's support and their Luther honor. Walther wrote, Praise God, we Missourians do not stand in this fight alone. The Wisconsin Synod and the theologians of his faculty and in its many able members stands at our side. That's a huge compliment from one who just a few years before that, had said our uh, actions in leaving the joint worker training agreement was ungodly. Uh, He had changed his tune. He recognized this is a doctrinal issue. They're siding with us. Without Heineke, I don't know what would have happened. This is August Pieper's uh, evaluation. Of course, he had taught with Heineke and knew him well. Heineke declared Walther's teaching is not Walther's but the teaching of the scriptures of Paul of Luther and of the Formula of Concord. The second way of presenting this doctrine election in view of faith however is a dogmatic derailment. Walther in his zeal let slip several sentences that said too much and they will have to be set straight. But Walther stands directly on scripture and his opponents are mired in reason. With him we stand on Scripture. Several Missourians are hard to bear, but on the score of theology, we are of one flesh and blood with Walther. Therefore, there can be no talk of separating from Missouri. Then, Heineke persuaded Walther to make a public correction of his dubious sentences, and he kept our synod on the right track although a small number of men, they were never really one with us, deserted us. Humanly speaking, our synod might, not, might have been torn apart if Heineke's theology, not outwardly dazzling but strong because it was Lutheran to the core, had not held us together. That, that's a high compliment from one of Heineke's eventual uh, colleagues. Well, in the course of time, the election controversy is going to die down until about the first century, the uh, first decade of the 20th century. Uh, Three synods in the upper Midwest started drawing a little closer. Wisconsin and Minnesota had been in fellowship from about 1872 on, had a joint worker training agreement for a while. Uh, Michigan Well, separated by Lake Michigan was a little slower to come uh, to the other two, but uh, eventually they recognized we can do our work much more efficiently if we can join together. Well, in 1892, that's exactly what happened. And part of the agreement for this federation was a worker training agreement. To save money, the synod would have one seminary, That was the seminary in Milwaukee at the time. Uh, It would have a college and a prep school in Watertown, a college and a prep school in Minnesota. That was the Minnesota Synod's old all-purpose school. And the seminary in Michigan, in Saginaw, would become a prep school. And it was the president of Northwestern College who, when they reopened that school after some turmoil in Michigan, suggested keeping the name Seminary kind of for tradition's sake. I think today it's sometimes more confusing than anything, but it's not a, a name that's gonna go away. Well, what did they do? On the very last day of the first convention of the Federation of Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, and other states, they proceeded out to Wauwatosa, for the groundbreaking of the of the Wauwatosa Seminary there. All right. uh, the location was part of the old Pabst Farms. One of the problems with this location was that we never received clear title to the property, and that eventually is going to lead to the relocation of our seminary to this campus. Uh, that's the picture of the building. Both my grandfathers happened to attend the Wauwatosa Seminary during... Some really golden years. You've probably heard the expression Wauwatosa theology. In fact, Kurt Jan has edited, it's four volumes now, isn't it? The Wauwatosa theology. Uh, I suppose everybody has their own definition of what that is. Real briefly, I would say, uh, it's really an approach to theology that emphasizes the historical, grammatical approach to Scripture and is dead set against any method that would raise human reason above Scripture, and then the second part, which is really key, is <laughs> particularly in times of controversy, you always have to go back to scripture. You don't quote old theologians. Old theologians are great. I'm an old theologian myself, so I, you know, I kind of understand. Don't quote the old theologians. Go back to scripture. Because you have to always mind those truths from scripture. And that's what these men were really known for. Uh, Heineke was not at all opposed to that direction either, uh, even though he did question Kaler at one point on it. I would say John Meyer, who ends up in Wauwatosa also. I would include myself among the Wauwatosa theologians. They began publishing the Quartalschrift, the professional magazine for pastors, This was authorized way back in 1892 at that first convention of the Federation. Uh, It took them a while to get going. 1904 is the first issue of what today is the Wisconsin Lutheran Quarterly. Uh, The election controversy is going to occur again, first decade of the 20th century, when attempts are made, good faith attempts made to resolve it, through a number of free conferences. A free conference is a technical term. It means that like-minded theologians come together, not officially representing their church bodies, but coming together outside of fellowship to, to uh, you know, discuss key issues and to try and reach agreement. Well, first couple of those meetings looked like we might be able to make some progress But then it became very evident that the Missouri Synod and the Wisconsin Synod were approaching Scripture differently from the Ohio Synod and some others. The Ohio Synod and later on the Iowa Synod uh, said, you always have to look at the schriftganza, the totality of Scripture. And so they would say, by analogy of faith, we have to say that election is in view of faith because nobody's going to be saved apart from faith. Heinecke and others said, no, if you're going to use that terminology of faith, it means looking at all the passages of the Bible that teach this specific doctrine. John 3.16 is true, but it says nothing about election. If you want to know what scripture teaches on election or predestination you got to look at those specific passages you can't kind try and trump them with other passages so when we say we let scripture interpret scripture we really mean looking at all that scripture has to say on one doctrine not bringing in passages that aren't dealing with that doctrine at all that really is a rationalistic approach to doing theology Well, the early issues of the quarterly, I suppose most people would think they would be full of writings on on church and ministry. They weren't. They really were dealing with the issues in these free conferences. Uh, Eventually, uh, doctrine of the church and ministry is going to come to the fore. And also in the quarterly. And there we think, of course, of August Pieper. We think of Oops, that's way too fast. Come on. We think of John Schaller. He was the man that was called to the seminary. He had been the president of Dr. Martin Luther College in New Ulm, called to the seminary in 1908 to replace Heinecke, uh, who had passed away. And of course, J.P. Kaler, uh, probably one of the most brilliant minds our synod has ever produced. And they took a new approach to the doctrine of the church and ministry, at least seems new in America. Uh, Missouri Synod, if you want a kind of a hardened view of the old-time Missouri Synod position, I wouldn't uh, accuse Walter really of teaching this, but they would say that the, the God-appointed form of the church is the local congregation, and the God-appointed office of the public ministry is the office of pastor we would say there are no uh, god-appointed ways for god's people to gather they do this as a matter of christian freedom it's very logical when like-minded christians are in the same area that they're going to gather into congregations it's not something god doesn't lay out a A constitution for us, a congregational constitution. And we would say, you know, other groups of Christians, like a synod, that also is the church. Because what's the basic meaning of the church? Believers. The church is believers. So wherever believers gather together, you have the church. Also in these larger organizations. And then when our men studied the passages on the ministry they would say, yes, God did indeed establish the public ministry, but he really didn't, you know, ordain any particular office in contrast to other offices. That Christians are really free to make those offices in the public ministry that suit their contemporary needs. For instance, there was no such thing as a seminary in New Testament times. There weren't prep schools. There weren't ministerial colleges. Uh, the church in its freedom can develop those offices of professor and other things. And so this became a controversy in the Missouri Synod which really has never totally been um, resolved. Today, uh, at least the Missouri Synod leadership would be on the same page as we are when it comes to the doctrine of the church. They'll even point to where some of their theologians did some mistranslating and so forth. Doctrine of the ministry, we're still working on that. Uh, I'm on a committee that meets with the Missouri Synod leadership, and that's an issue we always keep coming back to. All right. Anyway, these men are particularly known for their approach to church and ministry. Well, why in the world did we have to move here? Well, the Wauwatosa Seminary was built 1892-1893, opened in the fall of 1893. Uh, We didn't have clear title to the property. And in, well, by the first decade of the 20th century, you had a whole new set of building codes. You had electrification of buildings going on you know, through really every town of any size and so forth, and all kinds of regulations. And they said, if we were going to remodel this building uh, to fit our current needs, you know, we wouldn't be able to afford it. So they started a search committee. And that committee looked at a number of places, including Oconomowoc, also Wauwatosa. And in fact, bought a property, the Van Dyke property in Wauwatosa, for $40,000. But in the course of a year or two, The Synod said, that's really too rich for our blood. That was too much money. Remember, this was a time when uh, Synod finances were quite tight. So what did we do? We turned around and sold that property for $100,000. That's the best financial deal our Synod ever made. Ah. Well, they had to look some more, and they come out to Fiendsville and they find this farm, the Willie Farm, 80-acre farm. It's a young uh, Missouri Synod farmer, and they approach him. They say, Mr. Willie, we think this would be a nice place for our seminary. And Mr. Willie said, well, I'm young. He's probably about 25, I think, at the time. He said, I can farm anywhere if you think... This is a good place for your seminary. I'll sell it to you. And so we got this property for $25,000. Now, that's the original conceptual drawings for the seminary. You can kind of recognize it. It's certainly going to undergo some changes. Ah, come on. That's the cornerstone that was laid. I believe that's President Bergemann of the Synod at the cornerstone. Uh, the seminary uh, building committee hired really a pretty prestigious uh, architectural firm, Shepard Class and Shepard. And they did uh, buildings all over Wisconsin, a lot of government buildings. The conceptual drawings, uh, though we probably have to attribute to J.P. Kaler, he was kind of a, you know, a frustrated architect, you might say. He had some real artistic ability. And uh, he had just come back not too many years before from Germany. And he went the seminary to kind of resemble uh, the Wartburg Castle. And you can still see that if you've seen pictures of the Wartburg Castle and the outside of the seminary. All right, seminary being built. Why is this doing this to me? All right, my grandfather, Brenner, happened to be chairman of the building committee. Uh, My dad would have been, oh, about 11 uh, as it's being built. And they used to come up from Milwaukee almost every day to check on the progress of the building. And can you see up in the upper left-hand corner the circular staircase that's in the, in the tower, you know, as you go out, take a look at that. That's installed, of course, before the walls go up. And my dad, as a young kid, as they drove up to this site, saw that and it looked to him like a stairway to heaven. That, that was an 11-year-old's uh, memory of that. The seminary, this campus, was dedicated on August 18th, 1929. Uh, The contractor brought in all kinds of cement blocks and wood planks for seating and everything, and they had it on the hill that, uh, well, goes down towards, well, where John Schutze grew up and was my house on this campus, too. Uh, My dad was 12 by the time it was dedicated. He said they had kind of a primitive loudspeaker system and so forth. They uh, had a band to accompany the hymns. They had a mass choir and so forth. The congregations in Milwaukee were encouraged to give off their services that day. The old interurban train that uh, ran just, you know, to the east of this campus, put on extra cars for people. Uh, Some of the original pictures, you can see a line of old, old old-time cars. Largest gathering of Wisconsin Synod people in history, about 15,000 people. Uh, On the day of dedication, it was the end of the Synod Convention that year. Um, And there were two services, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And that's the way this originally looked, looking out from the circle towards one of the professor's houses. All right, the faculty that should have been teaching that first year on this campus were, from left to right, John Meyer, August Pieper, William Henkel, and J.P. Kaler. Oh, what? Oh, boy, I really got to move it up quick. All right. All right, well, I'll get the highlights. All right. All right. What had happened in the meantime? The Protestant controversy. One of our professors by then had already been dismissed, uh, Gerhard Riediger, for making propaganda in the classroom and kind of putting his nose in where it didn't belong. Uh, The seminary was brought into it to give an opinion on a very divisive uh, essay that had been written by a Pastor Bites. Uh, The faculty agreed on it, and then eventually uh, Kaler removed his signature from what was called a good actin, an official opinion on something. Uh, And he is suspended from office the first year on campus after all the work he had done, um, you know, for this campus. After one year, he still wouldn't change his mind. He was dismissed from the seminary. Uh, 1930, 1933, uh, he was dismissed from our fellowship for uh, fellowshipping with the Protestants. That's one of the horrible, tragic stories in our Synod's history. All right. Well, what's going on here? Are you doing that back there, or is that me? Come on. There we go. John Meyer becomes uh, president after August Pieper. 1938, that's going to be the beginnings of the struggles with the Missouri Synod. uh, As they made, uh, ALC and the Missouri Synod were making overtures for fellowship with each other. We were sort of left out of the discussions. We started giving warnings about that. Uh, Meyer, at one point in the controversy of the Missouri Synod, President Lawrence told this story, uh, faculty just wringing their hands at a break, not knowing what they were going to do. Meyer was an old professor by that time. He, He looked at his fellow faculty members and said, don't worry, my boys will take care of them. In other words, we've taught these young men The truth. We've taught them how to mine the truths from scripture. They'll do that. And he was right. I'm surprised how few we lost during the controversy. All right. Man who's going to succeed Meyer is Edmund Rhyme, a brilliant guy. Uh, really from the early 1940s on. He was sort of our Sinners Point man on Uh, Dealing with the Missouri Synod, he saw all the problems very clearly. He did a lot of writing for the Northwestern Lutheran and the Quarterly explaining what's going on. But uh, when we didn't break with the Missouri in 55 and again in 57, he said, I can no longer remain as president. Uh, He did remain in our Synod. I believe he went up to Rhinelander and helped out future Professor Gavrish for a while before being involved in the uh, founding of the Church of the Lutheran Confession. He always remained evangelical. My grandfather always blamed himself uh, for Rhymes leaving because my grandfather had sort of made him the point man. And when that's what you're dealing with all the time and you see it so clearly, it's hard to believe other people can't see it that clearly. He's followed by... President Loverence, who was president when I was a student, uh, who really helped hold our synod together, he and President Nauman of the synod. uh, Loverence did a lot of traveling, a lot of writing uh, during this time. In fact, he told me once that in those days, the end of the 50s, when he would meet with seniors, he never knew what they were going to say to him because some were leaning towards Missouri, some were leaning towards those who founded the CLC. The majority were, were firmly Wisconsin Synod. Uh, he went through a lot, and in his administration, there's going to be building going on, sections 7 and 8 of the dormitory. Oops, I'll get to, come on. Man, oh Man. I've never had trouble with a clicker like this before. Anyway, the library, I'll keep trying to do it. That's later. There's a delay on this thing. All right, let's get to Professor Otto's grandfather. Uh, Arlen Schutze takes over in 1978 as president. He had also uh, been one of our theological leaders in the controversy with the Missouri Synod. Uh, it was really at the end of Lawrence's uh, term that you have rapid expansion of the seminary. Uh, a lot of people thought that our synod would fall apart if we broke with Missouri, just the opposite happened. It ushered in the greatest expansion our synod has ever seen. Uh, for instance, in 1960, we were in 15 states One decade later, we were in 30 states. By 1975, we were in 43 states, and by 1978, we were in 48 states. Of course, those were the times of the baby boomers. And uh, the largest class ever to graduate from the seminary was a class behind me, class of 1978, 63 students. My class was 58, the class ahead of me was 61, which meant that the largest student body ever was In 1975, 76, a total of 261 students. Um, All kinds of building, of course, going to have to go on because of this. Uh, More professors are called. I won't go into those numbers. More professors' houses being built. Uh, Luther Lane is added in 1965. The Vicar year became a requirement in 1965. 1975, the first Master of Divinity was awarded. Before that, it was always Bachelor of Divinity and figured out that really the appropriate degree is a Master of Divinity. 1972, Summer Quarters started. That was authorized by an education committee of the Synod uh, reporting to the Synod Convention in 1919. Uh, it took us, what, 53 years to act on it Uh, but it's been going uh, ever since. Also in those years, what do we have? Uh, Beginnings of our professors also going overseas. Dr. Becker to Sweden. Uh, President Lovrens went to Zambia to teach for three months in school year 75, 76. We gave him a surprise going away swine, which we entitled to Africa with love after Missionary Wentland's book title. Uh, and then, when uh, Professor Schutze comes over, all of us uh, comes on as president, we're going to start having financial difficulties in the Senate. In 1984, there were 59 graduates of the seminary, six were unplaced on call day. And that happened year after year until 1996, uh, when everybody was placed. But then again, Uh, Quite often, not so after that. In fact, class of 2009, uh, there were 42 graduates, and this is on memory, 12 or 14 of them weren't placed on call day. I believe they all got calls uh, probably by the fall. Some maybe it took a year. Uh, What changed all that? Well, reduced enrollment, Uh, the class of uh, Let me see, 2014 was down to 22 students. So everybody was placed that year and they continue to be placed ever since. I wanted to go into the PSI program, World Mission Professor program. I don't think I have time for that. I got enough, five minutes. Well, if I can get the clicker to work, maybe I can do that, all right. Well, panning. And under his watch, that was built, a new organ. All right, the statue was placed there. Dave Valesky, he came in 1984, again, kind of in response to what we were hearing from the Synod. Uh, The Synod was saying we want pastors to have better training in evangelism. So he was called to be the evangelism professor and then eventually became uh, president Before that, Professor David Kuske had become head of the education department. He added courses in education, particularly the first year with uh, theories of of Christian education, and he expanded the course the senior year. Uh, Midler's started teaching once again in uh, grade schools off campus, which had been done previously, and then they had stopped that. And then in 1991, Professor Alan Sigelko was called uh, to begin a counseling course. All those things were in response to what we were hearing from the Senate, to try and meet the needs of the Senate. Uh, the big developments, of course, from 2000 on would be the, wow, well, project, this chapel. Those were conceptual drawings. All right. Paul Wentland, in 2003, when we decided to start a PSI program, became the first administrator. Of course, the next year he became president of the seminary. Yale and Sorum was called to head up that. The idea is to get non-traditional students to the point where they can either come onto our campus and take courses or can take seminary courses off campus. The World Mission professor, the first one was Churney. The idea was, well, he was called by both the World Board and the Seminary. The idea was he would teach in uh, foreign seminaries for a semester, and other profs would teach in foreign seminaries the other semester. He was followed by John Bear. And I even even got a picture of you up there, Skip, all right? And, of course, uh, PSI program, Produced a man like Pastor Joshua Yu. Uh, a number of us got a chance to teach, Lusaka. Uh, that's at Asia Lutheran Seminary in Hong Kong. Uh, on that picture, there's some Hong Kong students. There are about five or six from the mainland. Were our first cohort of pastors who eventually founded a Lutheran synod on the mainland. The ladies there, you might wonder, what are they doing? Those are the translators. And to be able to translate theological discussion in a classroom or theological literature, they've got to take theological courses. And so they were also sitting in that. I, I had a ball there. Also, oh, I don't want trepto up there. Come on, there we go. Come on. All right, also in places like the seminary in Leipzig, and I think we don't have time to look at accreditation or anything. Ask President Trepto about that, and I'll finish with, no, your picture doesn't wanna come back, Earl. There it is, all right, all right. It's in my second class here. I'm so proud of the boy, all right. Thank you for your attention. Sorry for going long. I think, we, I think we
0: have about five minutes or so for questions. Uh, are there anybody, any questions that anybody would have for our illustrious professor? The seminary's history. Oh, I don't know. This is dangerous. <laughs> It'll be a serious question. And the question is, so seminary begins at the home in Watertown Northwestern University is then built, and so classes are held then on the Watertown campus for the seminary until 1870, is that correct? Yes. I should have also welcomed, we, we do have, this is being live streamed too, and it will be recorded, and, uh, or it's being recorded, and so it will be uploaded if you want to watch it again sometime. But we also thank any online uh, online watchers that we have with us too. Unfortunately, we can't take any questions from them. Uh, but, anybody else have a question? Oh, Professor Brenner.
1: But A lot of exciting things happening right now with PSI and world missions and everything. and That's been restructured and even though our student body is still somewhat low here, the amount of work we're doing internationally is really quite amazing.
0: Although it wasn't, intero- oh, Mr. Taple over here. Uh, First of all, thank you for your nice presentation. Uh, which states do we not, ha- that we don't have any Wells congregations?
1: Well, we made it into all 50 by about 81. We don't have an organized congregation right now in Rhode Island. We have a preaching station in Maine. I think those are the two, maybe.
0: West Virginia. In
1: West Virginia, yeah. That that mission closed years ago, yeah, in West Virginia.
0: I believe Pastor Yankee, weren't you the. I was assigned in 82 to
1: Portland, Maine. I think
0: that was the last one, yeah. I think it was Maine that was the last one that we.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yep. and then you took a call all the way to California, one coast to the other. But they're still meeting. It's a preaching station, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you, Professor Brenner. Thank you you again for your for your presentation today. At this point, we're going to have a we have a short uh, annual meeting of the Historical Institute. Uh, I'm. If you students, you don't have to stay for this. And if there's others who, who uh, can't stay, you are more than welcome to uh, be excused at this time. Uh, I'll have a handout here in a minute. But, uh, uh, so we'll just take a couple of minutes while those who need to leave can leave. And hopefully some of you will still decide to stay. But, uh in that room and and potentially damaging uh, some of the the different artifacts and things we have there. Uh, So we're thankful, big thanks for for Bill for all that work. Um, Wells 175 uh, anniversary is taking up a lot of our attention over the next couple of years.